You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Peter Politis to talk about his real estate journey and how he's building a social living powerhouse, Graybrook Realty. Peter is a partner at Graybrook, CEO of Graybrook Realty Partners, and co-chair of Graybrook Realty's Investment Committee. He's overseen over 80 developments encompassing 39 million square feet with an estimated gross completion value of over $17 billion. Peter was also recognized in 2018 as one of Canada's top 40 under 40. The strategy we talk about in this episode is a bit different than the usual traditional real estate episodes we have here on the show, but I have to say that I really, really enjoyed this episode. I think this concept is very fascinating and I love learning about it. I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up launching my own private equity fund in the future to implement a similar strategy to Peter's. But before we get into the episode with Peter, I wanted to tell you guys about the fee for the show. And it's not a monetary fee. I'm not going to ask you to pay anything to listen to the show. That's why I love podcasts. They're free to listen to. And we're not going to change that. But what the fee is, is it's an idea that I got from my favorite entrepreneur. His name is Andy Frisella. And he can be a little bit polarizing for some people. Some people like him. Some people don't like him as much. I personally fall into the camp that does enjoy him. I love his content. He's in the fitness space and I'm big into fitness as well. So we align really well there. But I think he's a great business guy. I really like his story. But anyway, he hosts one of the most popular business podcasts in the world. And he's, it's been one of the most popular in the world for years and years and years. And he started from scratch, started with no following and, and built it to where it is today. So I think that's admirable. And so I want to do what he does with the fee for the show. And so what the fee is, is he asks, and what I'm asking of you is to tell one person about the show if you enjoy it. That's the fee. You don't have to share it across social media. You don't have to scream about it from the rooftops. You don't have to share it across all your different social media platforms. I mean, that would be great, but you don't have to do that. All I'm asking is that if the episode makes you laugh, it teaches you something, makes you think a little bit deeper about the concepts that we're, we're learning, just share it with a friend. If someone asks you, hey, what have you been listening to lately? What have you been learning? What have you been studying? Just say, hey, I've really enjoyed the Real Estate Investing Podcast and just ask them to check it out as well. And that's the fee. So if you guys enjoy the show, tell one person about it. We don't run ads to promote the show. The show grows only from you guys organically sharing it with people that you know. So I really appreciate all the support. I appreciate you guys paying the fee, sharing it with your friends and family. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode and the conversation with Peter as much as I did. Let's dive in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. If this is your first time listening to the Real Estate Investing Podcast, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Peter Politis. Welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, nice to be here, Robert. How are you? Tell us a bit about yourself. How'd you get to where you are today? Why'd you get into real estate? Like all good things, I, uh, I fell into it a little bit. You know, growing up, I was uh, I was born in Toronto, and I was actually raised in South Florida, and then came back up to Toronto for university. I, I really kind of wanted to be one of two things. I wanted to be a, a baseball player for the Jays. Turns out I wasn't very good, so that was a no go. 
And then plan B was to be a real estate developer for no reason. I don't know why it was like the other thing that I always was interested in. And I kind of became neither. We kind of got into investing in real estate development and, and private equity and that stuff. And I finished school and I, I started from Graybrook right out of school. Like I was an employee. I didn't have any equity. I wasn't a partner. I wasn't CEO. I was a kid with no experience and, and no money. And I just wanted to work hard. And 15, 16, 17 years later today, you know, we run a portfolio of about 17 billion throughout the US and Canada, and it all kind of just fell into place. And today, one of the three partners at Graybrook. And uh, when you say the story, it kind of seems like a long time, but it just kind of all happened in an instant. So did you do any deals like real estate deals yourself before you went into private equity at, at Graybrook? Or did you really just go straight there? It was really hard to do deals with like literally no money. But I bought a condo. I mean, that was like the extent of it. Like I scrounged up a few dollars early on in Toronto and before Toronto got super expensive when it felt like we were spending a lot of money. And today we, we sell parking spots for the amount of money I bought that condo for. It was kind of in my blood. Like my parents are actually real estate agents here in Toronto. They're both pharmacists and pharmacologists by profession, but they got into selling real estate. So it was always around it. And, uh, you know, owning real estate, I'm, I'm Greek. So like, you're not really Greek if you don't own either like a parking lot or a sandwich shop or, or some real estate. So it was, it's kind of like by DNA in many different ways. It's too funny you say that. I actually have a little bit of ties to a Greek real estate investor. So my father is an entrepreneur, owns his own small business, and he rents his space from a Greek individual, Greek man. And he owns a restaurant, a pizza shop with a rental property behind it, and then also a mechanic shop building behind it. So he's like got all this in one little parking lot. Like literally that's just, you just stereotype the typical Greek real estate investor, like restaurant, mechanic shop, rental unit, boom. You can get a Greek passport with that. <laughs> so how about today? Do you do any personal real estate investing outside of what you're doing with Graybrook? The thing with Graybrook is it became our thing, right? Like now there's three partners. We own the business equally today. So like Graybrook is Peter and Peter is Graybrook. So like we buy, you know, giant multifamily developments in South Florida and Fort Lauderdale and in Denver and other places. And we bought like an investment condo from one of our developments up here in Toronto. Everything's done through because it's, it's really ours and it's our money. So that's, that's probably the coolest thing about what we've built and what we get to do is that it's not like it's my job and I have a, a other thing. Like This is ours. It's our business and, and everything we do is the same, big or small. It's done within the business. So you don't do any small multifamily or rentals or anything like that on your own? We do buy that stuff, but we do it like in the business, right? Like in the answer, like it doesn't need the infrastructure of the business necessarily, but we, whether we buy a one-off rental apartment or a small multifamily, it's all done within, it's all done within the platform that we own. So it's like, it's because it's ours. That's the best part like the business. Interesting. So let's dive into Graybrook a little bit more. For those listening today that aren't really super familiar with the world of private equity and investing in real estate through private equity, give us an overview of how it works. I think private equity is typically a, an intimidating word for most people. They think it's like, I need to invest billions of dollars or I need to, you know, it's some version of corporate raiders or, or whatever. But it really started off very basic for us. Like we made a passive investment in a real estate development and thought, you know, this is really cool. We want to do more of this stuff. And we opened it up to friends and family. And then it grew from there. Like today we have over 7,000 active investors across 32 countries. And, you know, we're always taking new investors and we're looking for, for more people to join kind of the Graybrook family. But what it really is, is that we get to pick individual projects. In the case of a lot of stuff that we're doing in the US is our, our society platform that's multifamily 
partially rent by the bedroom. We might be the biggest developer with our partner PMG of co-living in the nation, actually, or at least a few articles keep writing that about us. So I'm going to believe it if people keep writing it. And really, it's about an individual without having to spend a ton of money and not have to be active, getting to participate in these large-scale developments. Like our minimum investments are, are $25,000. And we do, not because people just typically only invest $25,000, but we get to create a portfolio for people, many different projects, developers, locations. And now they can be part of projects that are several hundred million dollars or bigger as a small piece. And they don't have to worry about getting asked for more money or guaranteeing construction loans. And we've kind of made it easy for individuals to invest in large-scale residential developments, but without having to do all the work and worry about how, how big the project is. You mentioned co-living. What does that mean? Is that just rent by the room? I think that when most people think of co-living, they think it's rent by the room. And there is, it is rent by the bedroom. But the difference that we have in our concept in society is we believe that people live in the entire building, not just their units. And we have a heavily, heavily amenitized building that in some cases are two, three, four, five times the size of amenities of standard other buildings. So we let people basically rent by the bedroom. We have cleaning services, roommate matching, moving stuff around. You know, we joke around like, if you don't match with your roommate, we'll move you. If you don't match again, we'll move you. If you don't match again, maybe it's you at some point. But we allow people to basically have the privacy of a bedroom, a lock on their door, and a bathroom, common area that's cleaned by the building without worrying about other roommates paying the rent, but heavily amenitized co-working spaces, gyms that are like the size of Equinox, classes, pools. We have like battle of the bands, cooking classes, whiskey tasting. Like if I lived in one of these buildings when I was 21, I'd probably still be there today and I've made nothing of myself, but I had a lot of fun. It's really interesting to have this conversation with you because just recently on the show, we've had two guests, Todd Baldwin and Ryan Cha, and they both do something similar on a much smaller scale. So like on an individual basis, they buy six, seven bedroom houses and kind of do the same thing. And, and Todd even provides a ton of amenities, again, on a much smaller scale, but he provides Netflix accounts for everybody that's in the house. He provides all these types of game nights and does a lot of roommate matching and just all these other... He buys all the toiletries for the whole house so nobody fights over it. And it sounds like you guys have taken what they're doing, not copied them, but just taken it and completely blown it up and done it on a much bigger scale. And our focus is on like major urban cities because the whole point is we want to be in a AAA location, but we want someone for the cheapest total dollars every month to be able to live in that area. So like the places that we do it in Miami are like somewhere on Biscayne Bay, right on the water. We're doing it in Wynwood. We're doing it in Fort Lauderdale and Los Olos on the water. And like the Golden Triangle in, in Denver, we're doing it in Phoenix. We're doing it in very many cities in Chicago. Like how do you get to the nicest areas of a city, but for the lowest total dollars out of your pocket every month? And then again, things like what you just said, we include internet in the package. There's some house cleaning. There's roommate, there's a many, we have like dog walking parks. We have restaurants and like you go by our pool, a pool is like a resort pool with like an open bar and I mean, not like it's free bar, but there's services available to go there. And, and we want people to know that as you move around from, from place to place, because people tend to do, if you see a society branded building and we've seen people who like start by renting by the bedroom and they go to like a junior one bed and then they meet somebody and they go into a two bedroom and they rent, and they move up within the building because they want to stay there. It becomes a community. We have a lot of tech, like none of our doors have locks. Everything's done through RFID bracelets or your phone. I can send you a key to my room just by having my phone sending to you and you can be my guest for a week. So the key is going to be in your phone for a week. And then after on day eight, it evaporates. And we have you know restaurants in the building, coffee houses. Like We really create a community. We kind of joke that we cure loneliness. If you don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend, you'll probably meet one. And if you have one, you might break up and meet somebody else. <laughs> 
I love technology and I've always felt that the real estate space was like behind. I always thought that somebody needed to come around and do something and just implement technology in a way and integrate it in a way and, and really utilize it. It sounds like you guys are doing an amazing job at that. I want to I wanna go stay at one some of these times. We have units available. So you just go on the website, whichever one you want, we'll host you for a, a week's vacation on us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to take you guys up on that. So how does it work? So if somebody, say they want a one bedroom, what, what is their living situation like? Walk us through that a little bit. Are they sharing a living room with other people that also have a one bedroom that's like attached to it? Or how does that work? So only about 25% of our building is actually co-living. So like the units that are co-living are typically two, three, and maybe four bedroom suites that have like a giant common area. And then each bedroom will have its own individual lock and bathroom. And now if it's two bedrooms, you have a smaller common area and there's two bedrooms. If it's a three bedroom unit, bigger common area and three bedrooms. And if it's four bedroom, it's bigger in that sense. But the thing is, if somebody moves out of the unit, you don't care. You're responsible for you know, only your portion of the rent and utilities that is just individually done. You, know, you don't have to worry about my friend's moving, he's changing jobs, or he got married or whatever, and I got a, I got a whole lease that I got to worry about. So you just get your one bedroom. We have cleaning services that typically come at least twice a month, and it can be more if you want, so we can help clean your common areas. We stole, you know, there's glasses and plates and, and furniture that's in there. So you can get this stuff fully furnished. You can buy stuff that has no furniture if you want. You have both options in the building. So like literally the answer is like, bring your toothbrush and your clothes and everything else that you need is going to be there for you. So I'm trying to picture this in my head. So I'm, I'm envisioning in the middle, maybe like a living room and a kitchen and maybe like one other room. And then kind of on the outside of it, a bunch of bedrooms, and then everybody can access that common area and then they have their own space. Is that kind of what it's like? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Everything's done like balconies and outdoor spaces, which all of our units have are off the common area space. And obviously all the bedrooms have windows and lights in their bathrooms and all that stuff. And it's all depending on the unit, they can be split bedrooms. Sometimes you'll have two bedrooms next to each other with another two on the other side. And there's ample privacy. It's not like you're, you know, you guys are all just on top of each other. But the people that we talk to, they love the ability for the lowest total dollars to live in an area like that, have that amount of space on top of that because the common area is very large and then go live outside the building. Like we have gym classes every day, yoga, fitness, spinning classes, you name it. There's so many amenities. You go there and there's like movie night. We had like a talent show. We had a battle of the bands on one of our properties. Like it's really awesome. There's program living and then the co-working areas are like out of this world and all included in the rent. So Someone's sitting there saying, I can pay the lowest total dollars a month, rent a bedroom, and I have unlimited amenities, access, co-working space. I don't need a gym anymore. I don't need internet. I don't need a co-working space. And we go through them and say, listen, you're probably saving seven, 800 bucks a month. And you, know, you have events. So a couple of times a month, you don't have to go out with your friends drinking or, or whatever. There's an event in the place and you, you'll enjoy it. So I know it's going to vary a lot depending whether you're in Miami, you're in Toronto, you know, depending where you are in the globe. But what is a single bedroom rent for? What is somebody looking at in comparison to other types of rentals? So if you think about, let's talk about Miami, Fort Lauderdale and Denver, because they're all kind of a little bit in that range with some big cities that, that are whatever. You can get in for somewhere between 1200 and 1500 bucks a month per bedroom. And some of the stuff like for 1600 bucks or 1700 bucks, maybe you get a one bedroom and there's different, you can have a two bedroom. But like what the, the problem is, is that some of these places, if you wanted to rent a one bedroom by yourself, you're probably three to 500 bucks a month cheaper than someone just renting a one bedroom unit by themselves in a regular, less amenitized building. And if, if designed intelligently, 
the space can feel the same or bigger. So for us, you're sitting there saying, I can't go live in this area of the city for 1300 bucks a month. Like I just, there's no other place that I can get it, let alone in a brand new class A multifamily with like pools and all this stuff. Like these aren't, we're not buying old buildings and refurbishing them. These are all ground up new developments all have been built in the last one to three years kind of thing. So they have the latest technologies and it's all brand new. Are utilities fully included? Utilities are typically not included, but they're individually submetered and broke down. But like relative to the rent by bedroom, you're talking about like 15 or 20 bucks a month. Like it's not, doesn't, doesn't really move the needle all that much. And are you able to submeter it because everybody has their own bathroom? And then how is that common area split? Is that just covered by you guys? A common area is just split proportionally. Like again, that's like a couple bucks a month each. Like it's not needle mover in that way. And we have like LED lighting that's like energy efficient and all the appliances that we put in there are like energy efficient appliances because we're also operating the building, right? So we want the stuff to be top shelf, but you're talking about like granite countertops and stainless steel appliances. And every one of these units have outdoor spaces in, in, in all these cities. Our property that we're getting into development in Denver has like a view of the mountains from most of the unit. Some of these places are, are literally just brand new class A buildings that happen to be rent by bedroom stuff, but not cheaply built. Like when people think rent by bedroom, they think like, you know, it's a rundown old or I got to share a bathroom with four people or whatever. Like, no, like literally your lock on your bedroom is like an RFID lock. You got a bracelet or your phone and, and all that stuff. Everything's run by Nest and all the units. So you both your bedroom and the common area, like it's top notch for what it is. And it's great. And who's responsible for the common area stuff, keeping it clean, things like that? Or is it just kind of like if you live with roommates? It's a little of both. A, people have to be respectful. Like it just so it should be a general life rule, probably a good start to just be respectful. But we clean the, the common area space at least twice a month for them, regardless. So if someone throws a party on a Friday and Saturday morning, there's the remnants of a party, treat your roommates with respect. But, but, but we clean it regularly. And I got to tell you, we haven't really had a lot of problems. I'm trying to think of like an incident with a tenant that was like so horrible. And I can't really think of one. Like I know a few people that have bounced around a little bit in terms of roommates and turned out it was just more them than anything else, but nothing really all that bad. And frankly, I think because of the kind of whole spirit of the building, if you don't want to be social and you don't want to do stuff and you don't want to have amenities filled with people and you just want to be you know, left alone all day, maybe not the building for you. Yeah. I mean, it probably goes back to tenant screening as well. I mean, you're bringing in, as long as you're bringing in good tenants, you're probably not going to have an issue with them sharing a common space. And it's also because I think they know going into it that they're going to be up against the same thing. Like if you're a bad roommate, you could get a bad roommate. You could be, someone else can be a bad roommate to you. So it's like self-policing itself in that sense. Like I don't want to have the same problem that I'm creating for somebody else. And I live with this person. To be honest with you, it's probably one of the main reasons why we think that it's good for investing is because people think rent by bedroom, it's the cheapest total dollars, but on a per square foot basis, which is a, a metric that we look at on development, you actually get a higher rent than a bigger unit, even though you're getting less total dollars. So allowing you know, individual investors to participate in these huge developments in these major urban centers drive great returns because per square foot price is higher than your average built, not just because it's amenitized and whatnot. And I think that's a big driving factor of why we're being so successful financially for our investors. Before we started chatting, I spent some time researching about Graybrook and I was looking on their website, going through a lot of the properties. And for anybody listening that is interested and, and hasn't done that already, I highly recommend you do. The properties are amazing looking. And so I can only imagine they're not cheap to build. And like you said, you're doing brand new ground up construction and you're putting in all these amenities. So I can imagine it's not cheap. 
So clearly there must be a lot of demand for this. Is what is the demand like? I'll tell you the buildings that we've built and have leased up so far have always met or exceeded our velocity and they're always kind of outpacing buildings in the area. I mean, it's all dependent city to city. But I think that what we're seeing is the package that we're offering for the dollars to get in is driving a lot of people, but they also don't have a lot of other options. You could live in somewhere for 12 or 1500 bucks a month, but living in that place is not going to be like living in a highly amenitized brand new building. So, you know, I could get a 1970s garden style apartment, maybe in a little bit of a worst area and have a little more space, or I can have brand new building people, technology, fun, events, gym, co-working, internet, you name it. One of the restaurants in our, in one of our projects in Miami, one of the top restaurants, new restaurants of the year in Miami. And it was like in our lobby and it was just jammed. And every night you'd go there, it was like a scene and it's just like right at your doorstep. We're recording this mid to late November. So with everything going on, we couldn't have this whole conversation about co-living, all the different types of events that you guys throw, all the different amenities that you, that you have without mentioning COVID, of course. And so how has that impacted the co-living space? And, and I ask because I've, I've looked into doing some rent by the room stuff, not at your scale, but on a more individual basis. And I've been met with a lot of pushback for people who don't, aren't family that live together. And like, what if one contracts COVID and the other doesn't? How does that get handled? And then, of course, I mean, you guys are providing an experience. So, a lot of that experience that you're providing can't happen right now because of COVID. So, how are you guys managing that? What does that whole piece look like? I think whether it's rent by the bedroom or you're living with two or three friends, you got to understand that when you're living with somebody and you're not living alone, they're in your bubble and you're in their bubble, whether you want them in your bubble or not. If you and I go and get a two bedroom apartment, or, and we say, we're going to live, we know that you live with a roommate and that's part of someone who, who's in your life. Like my, I'm married, my wife's in my bubble, my one year old son's in my bubble and whether they like it or not, they're in my bubble. So I think that's not that big of a deal. If you want to live alone, then you can afford to live alone and you can, doesn't have to be anybody. I think the amenity stuff we have, we haven't been able to do all the things in terms of the programming and events that we would have liked, but I think people understand that number one. And number two, I don't think people are looking to like, I need you to throw a big party or else I'm unhappy and it's not what I thought. It's not like they want to go to these things either. Our pools have been open in some areas and there's less chairs out in the pool and they're socially distant and the rooms are used in specific fashion. Like one of our buildings has like a big common kitchen thing that you could have a lot of people doing stuff in at once and now can only be people in the same apartment or in a bubble by themselves booking the room. There's stuff that make it a little less fun, but I guess when there's a global pandemic, life's going to be a little less fun. Are there any legal ramifications of a roommate catching COVID or contracting COVID and the potential of giving it to someone else? Like, Have you had anybody say, oh, my roommate got COVID. I'm not comfortable living here. I'm not paying my rent anymore and either leaving or just not paying rent or just being unhappy or anything like that. I know it's an expectation thing. Like you said, totally understand that. But has that happened at all? No, not not really. I mean, I can't think of anything that's bubbled up to the point that's gotten to us where there was like, my roommate got COVID and I'm not paying rent because that person has COVID. No, but I mean, think about it this way. If someone that you know gives you COVID, you don't have legal ramifications either today, right? Like it's, the answer is we hope everyone's safe. And I think that because the building's so highly amenitized and programmed, we're used to having a lot of staff. The good thing about having a lot of staff is like the diligence in terms of hand sanitizer and wipes and a number of people in the gym or other areas. Like for a period of time in Toronto, like you couldn't use condo gyms. Right now in Toronto, the gyms are closed. Some of the buildings in the US, they're not. They're just different regulations that exist. And you just have to be vigilant because at the end of the day, that's just how everyone's going to protect themselves. And unfortunately, it's a numbers game where you can be as 
diligent as you want, but you could, you could still get it. One of the other pieces that I've been wondering as we talk about this, and like I said, I've actually looked into this quite a bit lately. I'm actually buying a couple properties right now. So I've been looking into it to do myself, again, on a much smaller scale. But one of the things that I've, one of the, I guess, issues or headwinds that I've faced is that there are a lot of local municipality laws or regulations around how many people can live together that aren't related. How does that work with such a big building, right? I mean, on a, say I buy a four, five, six bedroom, that's maybe three, four, five people that aren't related living in one building. That's not a massive deal. But in your situation, you have probably 50 to 100 different people living together that aren't related. How does that work? Not an issue from a zoning standpoint in the cities that we're working in. So there's no limitations on that. I think the limitations are more in some municipalities around like when you're doing it on a smaller scale. What's a legal bedroom and how many people can be there appropriately? It's, it's less so about if they're in the same family or not. Like in Toronto, we're it's Toronto's packed. This, the vacancy, even in COVID, is like sub 1%, right? The city's just jammed with people and like finding a rental is tough. I, when, I, when I was in, in college, like we rented a house, I rented a floor in a house and there was like five rooms. We put a lock on every one of the five rooms. We had one bedroom, one bathroom, and there was five of us living there, like two legal bedrooms that we just jammed everybody in there. And the, and the, the landlord was doing that. And that's not necessarily legal or allowed. But if you do it in the, in the scale, the, the way that we're doing it, there's no, there's no issues. But let me ask you a question because you said you're looking into it. Why are you looking into rent by the bedroom? Before I answer that, I think you made a good point that I think is probably answers my question and probably the reason as to why I might have faced some pushback. And I think it has to do with the bathrooms because in your properties, everybody has their own bathroom as long as I've understood that correctly. Whereas when you do this on an individual scale, you have five, six bedrooms and you're sharing, I don't know, maybe two bathrooms usually, maybe three, but usually two. So that's very different than everybody having their own bathroom. But the reason I'm looking into it is, I mean, the cash flow is just incredible. And, and I'm, I want to get to that because I want to get to those return numbers and kind of talk a little bit about what the financial aspect of this looks like on your scale. But for me, I mean, the numbers you can get on a rent by the room are just incredible and, and much higher than you can get on a per property or per unit basis. What you just described is 100% of the reason we're in, in the business and wrap around that major cities in the US that have like affordability issues, including Boston that we, you know, we've been looking at, wrap around heavily amenitized buildings that allow, give, give people other reason to live there, and then wrap around it that they're all relatively brand new. What your idea is the exact idea that we had on a larger scale. That's all. It was easier for us because we came from the building of condos. Our business started building condos. We've built thousands and thousands of condo units in our lives. And building a rental building is, is not necessarily all that different from building a condo building. Notwithstanding, we've turned it a bit different. And we thought to ourselves, why would we do rent by the bedroom part of the building is because we're driving up rents and we're making more money. And if you wrap around a lifestyle, it can actually be an entire selling feature. And you wrap around affordability and you wrap around all that stuff. You can offer a lot of things that other people can't. And I can afford to make bigger and better amenities because just like you said, we're charging more on a per square foot basis, which just means that I'm getting more dollars for the space than I otherwise could get. Yeah, I'm, very, I'm a very entrepreneurial type guy. So this whole conversation, my wheels have been turning. You probably see smoke coming out of my ears because I've just been... I love this idea. I really do. I think it's, it's incredible. I think it's such a good way to, to get into real estate. I think traditional syndications and things like that are just so oversaturated right now. I feel like everybody's doing a syndication. So I'm always looking for different ways to kind of do real estate different. And I really like what you guys are doing. And so throughout this conversation, I've been wondering if there's an opportunity to do this in smaller markets, but maybe like a little less amenitized. So maybe not, don't put as much into it, but 
still have a similar type situation. Maybe you're doing it in major metros, but maybe 45 minutes outside of Boston. So people can still get to Boston if they want, even more affordable, maybe a little less amenities because you're not going to have as much cash flow. But I wonder if that might work. I think the answer is it all depends on what the rents are in the area. One of the big things is I'm not going to rent a bedroom if I can get a one bedroom for the same price. So what can I get a smaller unit for anywhere? And like we're focusing on major metro areas mostly because we want to do it on a scale. Like our units, our buildings typically have between like 250 and 450 units. And that could mean like 400 or 700 beds. 25, 30% of it is typically co-living. But it works in different areas as long as you can drive the rents. And the question is like, Building ground up is different from retrofitting, right? That's a totally different side. So like sometimes the cost of building new doesn't make sense in some places because the rent I'm going to have to charge to make that work is just too much. And that's where we have the trade-off. The reason we're focusing on major metro is because I know I can afford to build it and charge a reasonable rent just because where rents are. If I'm somewhere where I can't, maybe I have to look to retrofit something because I can't afford to build ground up new, new construction. The only thing I can say is that as I get further and further along in my real estate journey, this is definitely going to be something that, that I look into doing myself and probably work with you guys on in, in the future myself. So definitely uh, looking forward to it. You've mentioned a couple of times that you focus on major metros. Why Toronto and South Florida, mainly Miami? I mean, there's a lot of metro areas, right? Why'd you choose those two? It's actually kind of funny because Toronto, for those of people who don't know, Toronto over the last 15 years has probably been the best real estate market in the world. Maybe not even close in terms of growth, price, all the metrics that people look for, affordability, global price, what you're selling for, what you can get in rent. There is a land restriction in, the, in Toronto that basically does not allow our city to continue sprawling outward and it's forcing us to build upward. And our planning process is very complicated and onerous. Like it just is. And it doesn't allow for somebody who's not local to very easily come in here and develop. So there's like barriers to entry for developers. There's land restrictions from a green belt that doesn't allow us to build outward. And then we have a hundred to 200,000 people moving into the city every year. So we're actually not meeting any of the supply, the demands that we have from the supply in Toronto every year. And I'll tell you, when, when I started my career, we got super excited when we sold the condo for $290 a square foot. And 15 years later, that condo is 1400 bucks a foot. And when we looked into the metro areas, the reason we started in Miami was it was an area that I knew really well. I grew up down there. I knew people. We had relationships. People who aren't from Miami think like, oh, Miami is like a place to go and, and party. I see a lot of similarities to Miami, like Toronto 10 years ago. People are coming right into the city. Forget about the beach. People are coming into the city. Jobs are coming there. Insurance companies, financial companies, quality of life is high. Weather is good. No state income taxes. And the largest population demographic in Miami now and South in Florida is 18 to 35. People think like everybody lives in Miami, plays shuffleboard and is at 100. Well, that's actually not the case anymore. The city just totally changed. And when you bring jobs and you bring restaurants, you know, all that stuff, you've seen stable rent growth, which is what's been going on. And then that's what drove us into Fort Lauderdale. And when we targeted cities, we said, what cities do we want to be in in the US that are major metro? I got to be honest, Denver, if I could only pick one city to do this stuff in, it probably would be Denver. I see Denver as the boom that San Francisco went through. I see Denver going through that over the last couple of years and over the next five or 10 years. A lot of smart tech jobs, people moving there, good quality of life, four seasons of fun. 
And that demographic that is moving there is the exact demographic that would live in some of these buildings. We spent a lot of time looking at cities, growth, jobs, demographics, and that at the end of the day is what's going to drive the occupancy and drive these things to be successful developments. Yeah, Denver and Austin have been taking a lot of tech jobs from the Valley. I know a lot of people are moving, a lot of people, companies, a lot of just population has been moving to Austin and Denver from Southern California and even Northern California. So I definitely have read a lot about that trend and can understand that. And Florida, yeah, it definitely has a stigma about being uh, the stairway to heaven for for a lot of people, but that's probably not the, the major metros like Fort Lauderdale and Miami, but the rest of Florida, maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe other parts. And, and I think that for us, it's, it's about creating a brand that we want people to recognize what the building is. Society is, is the name of the company, the name of the brand, but there's Society Denver and there's Society Miami and there's Society Wynwood and there's different parts of the city. And, and people know like, once you see that, we've seen people move from, from society building to society building to come to new, new towns, right? And I think that's important for us is to really make sure that people know that if you're in a society building or you're investing in a society building, like what you're getting at the end of the day. Having started in Toronto, how was the transition from investing in Canada to the US? And how is the US market, just in general, all the US markets that you're in, how are they different than Canada? We starting in Toronto, Doing development in Toronto is probably one of the top two or three most complicated places to do development in. Zoning, planning, ambiguous processes, strict rules for building, constructability in terms of weather, underground parking, like all the things you need to cut your teeth in to make it sure you really have lived a long, full development life, you do in Toronto day in and day out. And we did it for a lot of years. As we move down into the US, it's almost like they're not They'd be just as happy if you didn't build anything down up here. Like that's just the general way the city operates. And it's crazy because it's what's driving the city and it's what's keeping it solvent and growing and all those things that they treat you that way. And then in South Florida, as an example, zoning is predetermined as of right. In many cases, you know, there could be design review panels and that could be a three or four or five month process. It's predefined. I could buy a condo. It could take two, three, four years to get it approved in Toronto. Right. So before I can even start doing something or a rental building or not. So in the, in the US, developing in different cities is a lot easier from a planning standpoint than we're used to. And the constructability, there's a lot more space down there. Obviously, not everywhere in the US there's space. Like New York City, there's, there's not a lot of space to do stuff and it's hard to build. The constructability of the spaces that we have to work with in what we're doing in these major metro cities is not tight. We built a building here, a, a 50-story building on 7,900 square feet of land. Literally, it's like someone's yard. And you're talking about building 50 stories and there's parking garages and lobbies and entranceways. So like, I'm not saying it's easier, but I'll tell you that there's more money and better margins to be made in the US, but it's not as hard to keep competition up, which is the, the trade-off. It's easier for a guy like me to come in here and my neighbor can do something quickly too, just like I can. In Toronto, it's almost like we're, no, one's, no one's competing against the other guy because it's also hard to get to a point that we're all going to be okay once we get to that point. Yeah, that's pretty incredible that you can build a 50-story building on just about 8,000 square feet. And, and I'm very familiar with that size plot of land because my yard in the property that I currently live in is 8,000 square feet. So I know exactly how big that is. And I'm just imagining out my window there being a 50-story building. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. Engineering is, uh, is interesting on something like that. I can only imagine. I know there's, there's a lot of people listening to the show that actually want to go the opposite way. You came from international into the US. I know there's a lot of people that want to go from the US to, to international markets. So 
What advice would you give someone looking to do this? Maybe they're from the US, they want to invest in Canada. What are the major things they need to look out for? I think that my general belief is in business. If you really want to invest in a good horse and make your money work for you. So there's a difference between going to work for your money every day. Like if I buy a property or you buy a property and I'm managing the tenants and I'm doing the work, you're investing your money, but you're also investing your time and your energy. There's a place for that in, in life and in someone's portfolio. And there's also something like letting your money work for you. And letting your money work for you is something that's totally separate. And that's really why we have so many investors is because people want to invest in real estate, but they also don't always want to invest their time on top of that or have other responsibilities or be responsible for a mortgage or any of these other things. My advice is whether you're investing in Canada or in the US, some portion of your portfolio, you should find a horse that you trust, that you know they know what they're doing, and you can back that horse because the infrastructure and the execution they can provide you and the scale of what you can do with a good horse is way more than what they can do on their own. It doesn't matter. City of Toronto is like a great example. You could have a billionaire who has a gazillion dollars and all the money in the world, he'd come into Toronto and not be successful. I've seen it. It's happened. It's complicated, right? So that could go for any international market. It's not just Toronto, but having a manager that provides you a platform and an access that you trust, can report to you, you understand what you need to do and what you're getting out of them, I think is, is the best way to get into a new market. I want to go back to how you're focusing on the luxury market and, and really just the highest end of the luxury market. Is there increased risk with focusing on this? I had this conversation a lot and in different areas. People generally think that the luxury market is risky because there's not a lot of buyers. The first thing that people say is like, well, how many people can afford it? And how many do you have to sell? And that's hard. And I actually have a different view. I think there's actually a lot of people who can afford it. The reason the luxury market, in my view, is considered riskier by, by people is, is because it's a binary thing. Like if I'm buying my third, fourth, fifth home, it's going to be because I want it. It's because it's a lifestyle. If it doesn't have what I want, I'm not going to buy it because I don't need to buy it. And you have to be able to hit the nail on the head. The word luxury is the most overused word in real estate. Like if I put a stone countertop in a bathroom, congratulations, you have a luxury unit. And I think that's really been the, the misnomer that everything's been labeled luxury. And if you're doing it at the highest end of the market, you can be very successful and you can have a lot of demand and a lot of velocity, but you have to be able to deliver and understand what it actually means to deliver a luxury product to that buyer. If you don't understand that buyer and you think you know luxury and to you, they're looking at it and like, that's not luxury. You're not going to get anywhere with it. So you really, combination of lifestyle and life experiences that you're giving these people and you have to make them want it because they don't need it. I think the other piece that's a little bit different with what you're doing is that you are providing a luxury product, but you're renting by the room, which is affordable. So you're not renting a 4000 dollar a month apartment unit when the average rent is a thousand bucks, you're renting an individual bedroom, which tends to be a little bit more affordable for most people than say a, a full unit. So that I think in and of itself kind of helps hedge the risk that luxury that a lot of people think has. And also like you're buying an experience for the, for less total dollars. And I think that today everyone I think is looking for an experience. They're looking for like things to do and fun like and that's what they want. And having the ability to have that kind of experience where you live every day, just in the people that we talk to, COVID aside for a second, but if I'm bored, I can go downstairs and see 30 different people. I can go to the, the TV room. I can go to like, and I say TV room, it's like a movie room with outdoor screen, grassy knolls by the pool. And I can go by the bar and have a drink and see my friends. There's co-working spaces. I can take a class, a cooking class. Uh, there's always stuff to do. You can just shut her down in your room and do nothing. 
and that's great. But if you ever want, you know, it's Saturday and I want to, there's always things to do. And I think that's the coolest thing is that if you sit there and I've sat in the lobbies and people are coming by and it's kind of like, I don't know, that show Cheers. It's like, ah, no, everyone knows. They're like, hey, walk in the door. Everyone knows. And it's like, oh, hey, 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 hey. And it's, it's not like 10 strangers. It becomes a community because everyone's living outside their units as much as living inside their units. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of like suites from colleges. Really, it was very similar to at least where I went to college. I actually commuted, so I didn't live in these, but I had a lot of friends that lived on campus and some of them had suites. And it was essentially what we've been talking about is, is they had these common areas. They had bedrooms on the outside. They didn't all have their own bedroom or bathrooms, but they're all very similar to like what you're, you're talking about. It sounds like you've taken that model, if you will, and kind of expand it and made it accessible for professionals. I think that's the biggest thing. People think like people who can't afford something, you'd be surprised how many people who have great jobs who rent by the bedroom or they want to stay in the building because of how monetized it is and the community that it creates. And, and I think that's what we look to do for like our investors too. How do I access something like this on this scale without me having to do it? Like your wheels are turning. You're like, okay, I'm going to buy this thing, this unit. I'm going to turn it into 12 bedrooms. And I'm going to do this. And I do that. You can go down that scale, but also there's a group of people who obviously don't have the same experience or maybe the financial capacity that you do. And they want to invest in something like this and they need to do it through a group or a platform. And that's why, you know, part of why we started with like a handful of friends and family investors. It's not like I woke up one morning and I knew 7,000 people around the world. All the expansion of the investors was like word of mouth. They used to joke it was like leather power, a lot of kitchen tables and, and couches. And, and somehow over the years, it became what it became. I know that there's going to be so many variables that are going to play into this next question. So it's going to be hard to give a straight answer, but I'm curious, just in general, give us some general guidelines if you can on you know what types of returns do investors see investing in these types of products? I think from our perspective, without meeting a specific return threshold, we just won't go into a development. So like, if we're going to go to the trouble of buying a piece of land, taking it through design, constructing it, leasing it, and selling it, because ultimately we actually lease it up and typically sell these things. That's how we make our money. We don't keep them forever. We try to make at least a, like a double our money every four to five years. So if somebody invests a dollar, I want to know that over a four or five year span, which is about how long these things take, depending on the size of the building and the location, I'd say like anywhere from like as little as three and a half or four years to as much as five or six years, depending on the size of the development and, and where it is and all that stuff. So people have to understand they're kind of three and a half to six and a half year terms typically. And we'll buy these buildings, we'll sell them, we'll lease them up. And if it's six years, we want to do better than a double. And if it's three and a half years, we're you know, a little less than a double our money. And that's kind of, we try to look for a, like a 20% simple annualized uh, return on our money. Yeah. I was going to say using the rule of 72, it sounds like it's about a 14 to 18% annual return somewhere in that, that ballpark. Yeah. From an IRR standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm a finance guy. I'm an accountant, finance person by trade. So I would absolutely love to see a financial model that goes into how you guys are analyzing one of these deals. I can only imagine what it must look like. Yeah. Listen, happy to share it. I, you got to have a powerful computer. These models are crazy. I feel that. I, I, a lot of the... In my day job, I'm a corporate finance manager. And some of the, the spreadsheets that I've created are like 50, 60 tabs long with the longest Excel formats or formulas that you've ever seen. And it crashes my computer all the time. So I totally understand. So there you go. We'll send it over. That way we can crash your computer once on us. I would love that. I'd love to, to dive into it. I want to talk about you a little bit and learn about what you've been learning through this pandemic. I think it's putting a lot of stress on a lot of people from entrepreneurs to real estate investors to even just individual people, everyday people 
What have you learned during this time and what are you doing to better yourself? I think I've just given where we are in terms of like what we do every day, which is development. It's not like every day there's something going on. I always feel like we're dealing with one issue or another every day. It's like blocking and tackling every day and you have a good day and then you go to the next one. You got to do So I think it kind of set me up pretty good to deal with the pandemic. Like if you try to think a day, a week, a month, six months in advance and try to plan everything out when there's uncertainty, it's just hard, hard to do that. Right. So I think you got to accept that you're dealing something on a much more shorter term basis. You control what you can control. You control yourself and you control your family and you try to make sure that you're doing safe things. And, and in the business, you, you, you have to do your best to deal with the cards that you're dealt with. If you can't wrap your head around that it's a pandemic and it's going to be hard and it may not be as good as it was yesterday and we don't necessarily know exactly how tomorrow is going to go, you're going to drive yourself crazy. And I think that that's something that when I wake up every morning, I'm like, okay, we're going to deal with whatever's coming up with us today and, and it's going to be fine and we'll figure it a way around it. And it's, it's all going to be, we know that the end game is going to be, it's all going to go away through a vaccine or through other stuff, whether that's a day, a week, a month or a year, we don't know. But we're used to also investing in long periods of time. And like, I live my life like four to seven years at a time, just because every time we buy a project, it's not, it's not like week to week or, or whatever. Like, that's just not how development works. So it's almost like we were built for this. And I had a little boy. Uh, I didn't have a little boy. That would have been awesome. My wife had a little boy and I, I cheered her on while she was doing it. And he just turned one year old. I had this like mixed blessing of like being able to spend a lot more time at home. I was the kind of guy at the office and now it's a little bit different than the little guy, but I very rarely left work and came back from work the same day that I left it, which means that, you know, I'm getting home at 12, one, two in the morning, day in and day out, like putting in 40 hours by midday Wednesday. Like it just is, that was the life that it was leading in. And it allowed me to slow down a little bit and spend some time with my son. And I'm making an even, we're back in the office now and have been for a while, but making an effort to go home, see the little guy, come back to work or work from home because it got a little easier. So I think it just allowed everyone to put things into perspective and what matters. And yeah, there's could be some stuff in business that's, that's difficult or whatever, but you'll deal with it. And you have to have that attitude and then you'll figure it out. And, and that's what it is. And, and frankly, there's some things that are out of your control. So if you really try to like make sure that there's a certain outcome, it's just not possible all the time. First off, congratulations on the baby boy. Thank you. I can relate to what you said very very closely because I've been a workaholic my whole life. I mean, I'm, I'm young. I'm only 25, but I, I've been a workaholic my whole life. I'm always that guy that works 70, 80, 90 hours a week, whether it's on you know my corporate job, my side hustles, my own businesses, my own real estate, whatever it is. I'm working close to 100, if not more hours a week. And similar to you, I actually have a two-year-old son at home as well. So this pandemic has allowed me to, like you, spend more time with him at home and do things with him. So that's been an unexpected benefit or... or the silver lining, if you will, to rather poor situation. Listen, the driving down of interest rates, there's going to be unintended consequences in my view of like real estate price inflation because of the low interest rates that are going to be around for a long time. I can tell you in Toronto, our housing market since this started has just been going gangbusters. Like I tell you, you wouldn't even believe me. Line up for houses because there's such a shortage of houses in Toronto that now that people can afford it a little easier, everyone's trying to get into the market, which is unbelievable when you think about it. It's pretty crazy. Like I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but I'm still pretty active in the markets right now. I'm buying, selling you know, on my own individual scale. And I just locked in an interest rate of 2.2% on 30-year fixed debt. I mean, that's just crazy. A couple of years ago, you're getting paid that on a high-yield savings account. And now I'm locking in 30-year fixed debt at 2.2%. I mean, that just blows my mind when my mortgage broker told me that. I was, I was shocked. And 
You know, what's even more crazy is I'm selling a property and it's about a $200,000 property, say 210,000. So it's not super expensive, but uh, we listed the property on a Tuesday and we chose to not have any showings until Saturday to allow a couple days for the MLS to catch up and get it listed and build some demand. Within 12 hours, we had 16 scheduled showings and we had three offers, all three over asking, and it ended up going about 15, 20% over asking by the weekend. We ended up having 30 showings that weekend. It's crazy. I mean, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic, and that's the demand you're seeing on a not that fancy of a property. I think that, that people know that this is like a temporary shock to the system. That doesn't mean there's not going to be repercussions. It doesn't mean there's not people who unfortunately lost their jobs, who that job may not be there. I mean, I feel for. All my fellow Greeks in the restaurant business, you know, there's nothing you can do to help some of these guys and it's, it's difficult. But on the other end, the people that are fortunate enough to keep their job are sitting there saying, exactly what you just said, I could afford more house than I could ever afford before. It's going to cost me the least it's ever going to cost me. I better do it now because these are historically low interest rates and, and I, can, I can do it now. Well, Peter, I've really enjoyed our conversation, both just from us and also from the strategy that you guys are doing. I, I find it fascinating. And I really think what you guys are doing is awesome. And I, I really highly recommend anybody listening to the show today goes and checks out what you guys are doing. Their properties are amazing. The strategy is super cool. And I know it's something that I'm going to keep in the back of my mind for as I scale up and, and look for opportunities to deploy my own capital into uh, funds to invest with, with trusted third parties. So Peter, those looking to learn about you, learn about the strategy, learn about Greybrook, where's the best place for them to go? You can reach us by emailing us at invest.graybrook.com or you can go to our website, graybrookrealty.com and it's G-R-E-Y-B-R-O-O-K realty.com. I'll be sure to put a link to those resources in the show notes. I'll put a link to a couple of my favorite properties that they have in the show notes as well so you guys can go check those out. Peter, thanks so much. Cool. Awesome. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.